Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining me again on A Better HR Business podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Cynthia Deeran. Cynthia is an international business strategist, author, and keynote speaker. She's also the founder of Deeran and Associates and the International Business Accelerator. So Cynthia, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, Ben, it's great to be on the show. Great to have you here. Whereabouts are you? I'm in Sydney right at the moment. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> oh, I spent a number of years living in Sydney and catching the, the ferry across to, to Darling Harbour there, not to Darling Harbour, to Circular Quay and working in that sort of area. Beautiful. Great part of the world. It's a real treat, isn't it? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, look, you've got an amazing story and uh, background. So I'm curious, how did someone who studied French and Japanese end up as an expert in Middle East business? That's yeah. a great question. <laughs> uh, it was pretty much totally unintended. So I did do French and Japanese at school and university and then I joined Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as a kind of baby diplomat and I was very much hoping I would get posted to Japan or to a French-speaking country. But when I applied for postings, the staffing department came back to me and they said, oh, we noticed you have language aptitude. And I went, "Mm, yeah. And I said, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to have a posting to Abu Dhabi? looked at the lady and I said, Abu, where? Where is that? Is that like near Addis Ababa? And she said, no, absolutely not. It's in the United Arab Emirates. This was back in the day when nobody had really figured out where the UAE was. Um, And so in a very short space of time, I found myself packed off to language training in Egypt. And then after that, I I was posted to the United Arab Emirates. So the way that I got into um, Arabic and into things Middle East related was more or less an accident. It wasn't something that I sought out at all. Brilliant. What was that experience like? Because yeah, you were heading one direction and swung completely to another. So what was it like? Look, I think it was, it was quite confronting for somebody who was about oh, 24 or 25 at the time. I mean, I'd travelled a little bit before then. It's not as though I'd never live, uh, left Australia, but... Touching down in Egypt for the first time was a bit of a shock to the system because I had never lived or spent any time in what is essentially a third world country. So, you know, I went from a very comfortable existence in Sydney and then in Canberra to suddenly living in a city which, you know, although my existence was comfortable, was somewhere that was marked by extreme contrasts. You know, um, it's one of the first times in my life that I have ever felt extremely wealthy compared to the average person on the street Mm. and you know that was a little bit shocking and I remember the very first weekend that I was ever in Egypt I was taken by some um, newly made friends out to an area called Ma'atam which is on the outskirts of Cairo and it's a gigantic rubbish dump and the most confronting thing about it is that people actually live in the rubbish dump and they make their living from sorting through the rubbish and recycling things. And I'd never seen that before, and it just kind of blew me away. And, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about it, but most of the time that I spent in the Middle East, which was, um, well, six years full-time, and then over a decade in total travelling there and working there, most of that time, I suppose, 
has really been marked by extreme contrast because it is a region of extreme contrasts. Yeah. So how did that lead you towards your journey of beginning the business and the actual consultancy side of things? Well, look, I stayed working for the government for about five years. Then, because I'd already invested a fair bit of time and energy in learning Arabic and getting to know the region, I went to London, I did a Master of Middle East Politics, and then I actually crossed over to the dark side and became a management consultant. (laughs) And because I had Arabic and I, I spoke it pretty fluently, it only took a couple of weeks for me to be picked up out of London by a consulting firm that was working for the British government in Iraq. And so two weeks after I'd handed in my final um, project for my master's, I found myself on a plane heading to Baghdad, you know, with my body armor tucked under my arm. Wait, what kind of times, what kind of time frame is this in Uh, relation to wars? This was September 2006. So this was right in the middle of everything, kind of going to hell in a handcart. And uh, I spent the next nearly four years working in Iraq, mainly in Baghdad and also in Erbil, uh, first for the British government, then very briefly for the United Nations, and then for um, the US Department of International Aid, and then for the US Department of Defense. So I saw a lot of really, really interesting things uh, during that part of my career as a management consultant. I then came back to Australia in 2010 because I'd been away for more than a decade, and any time somebody mentioned moving to a new country, tears would well up in my eyes. And I thought, <laughs> That's a good sign. Yeah. I think I might have chronic homesickness. Perhaps I should go home. So I came back to Australia in 2010. I uh, was the CEO at an industry association for several years. And then in 2013, I, I created my own company because the, the experience that I'd had working around the world, in the Middle East, in London, in the States, in Europe and in bits and pieces in Asia had really highlighted for me that there were all these massive opportunities for companies in global markets, Mm. but there was a huge gap in terms of the skills and knowledge uh, needed to make a success out of going global. And so I started the company to help companies to actually realise that dream of stepping into global markets and making a go of it. Fabulous. Look, we'll come to what the business does in a moment, but I have to go back. What was your family's reaction when you said, look, I've decided to leave Iraq and come home? <laughs> they said, when, when, I, when I said I was going to leave Iraq, they were extremely relieved. <laughs> so they would never say, don't do it. They said, well, you know, we guess you can calculate the risk if you think it's safe enough, then I guess that's okay. But, sure. um, you know, they were worried, especially when we'd be on a Skype call and suddenly I'd say, oh, I'll have to go. That's the rocket alarm going off. And I'd oh, just wow. slam the laptop shut and they'd be sitting there on the other side of the world wondering whether I'd made it through the rocket strike. So, uh, yeah, there was a sigh of relief breathed all around when I said, actually, I'm done with that now. I'm going to move on to the next thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a little bit different to me in recording a podcast and maybe someone has double booked the room. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think you win that one. So let's go back to the business. You saw, I guess, an opportunity and a gap whereby companies were maybe struggling or couldn't work out the best way to develop an international business. What does the business or your consultancy actually do now? Essentially, we specialise in helping companies to create a great strategy for going international. Now, we do it in a variety of ways. 
Um, at one of the end of the spectrum, we tend to work with very large country, companies and we provide specialist advice on things like cross-cultural consulting. So, you know, a typical engagement that we might do there is that a, uh, a pharmaceutical company will come to us and say, uh, we're having some problems between our teams located in different countries and that's affecting the working environment and that's obviously affecting our bottom line and our profitability. Can you come in and work with our teams to actually improve those relationships? And that's the work, the kind of work that we do with very large companies. Um, for very small companies, we run a thing called the International Business Accelerator that I might come back to and talk about in a minute. Okay. And then in the middle, we have a set of services that are targeted mainly at the mid-market. And those are things like financial modeling for international expansion. So um, creating a, a financial model for a company before they tackle a new international market so that they can get objective numbers on what's likely to happen to their cash flow if they go international, what kind of resources they might need, um, what their performance might look like over five to 10 years. Um, and then, you know, some tools for benchmarking, uh, some tools for valuation of the company and that kind of thing. So we do financial modeling. Uh, we do cross-cultural consulting also for the mid-market. And we also do a little bit of business matching work where particularly if a company comes to Australia and says, oh, we need a local partner or, you know, we're looking for some suppliers of X or we're looking for a particular type of client, we can then match uh, that company up with the right people in the market here in Australia. Right. Okay. That's quite a range of services. What types of businesses can look at international expansion? It sounds really strange to say, but I think businesses in pretty much any sector of the economy can consider it. Right. And really what it is about is having an offering that has something a little bit special or unique about it, you know, really having a strong value proposition and understanding why you've been successful, um, why your offering is going to be attractive in a new market and what is going to be the thing that makes you successful. So uh, it's not really about what sector you're in. Mm. It's about what have you got that makes you stand out from the crowd? Because that global marketplace, as you probably know, Ben, is a very, very competitive place. And there are lots of people from all over the world out there in global markets fighting for space and fighting for position. So it's really about... Um, understanding how what you do is unique and how you can compete. Yeah. What about business size? Because I'm imagining the people are listening thinking, oh, this is typically not a multinational, but a, a national business wherever they are, which, whichever country. But, you know, it needs to be thousands of employees and then we're going to open up a whole new range of offices abroad or overseas. No, is that no. what you're looking at? Look, you don't have to be enormous. So obviously, if you are larger, it's easier because you've got more resources to, to play with. Uh, and obviously, if you're a tiny, tiny, tiny company turning over a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, it is more difficult. But I think it'd be fair to say that if you really want to do it, a company of pretty much any size can go global in some way or another. So for example, um, I spoke to a company recently that makes bikinis out of Australia. And this company has already branched into international markets using a fulfillment service, which is basically DHL. Mm. So they design and get their stuff made here in Australia. And then they basically post it around the world and they've used their website plus influencer marketing to do that. Now they are not a large operation, but through doing that, they've generated over a million dollars in sales in the last year. 
I think that um, the, the, the sweet spot for this is really from about $2 million up, just because at that point, companies have at least got a couple of staff. And, you know, if, if they've actually set up the business model correctly, they've got some profitability, they've got some margin, they've got some money that they can actually set aside to use to do the international expansion. So what I'm saying here is you don't have to be massive, but it certainly helps if you're not absolutely tiny and struggling. Yeah, okay. What are the most common problems you're called in to address? And I'm actually reminded of some classic marketing error from decades ago where I think it was Ford or someone went into South America to sell their new car called the Nova, which yes. I think in Spanish means won't go. That uh, didn't sell yeah. particularly well. And they also had, they made a similar branding mistake with the brand Pajero, which in Spanish, unfortunately, and you can bleep this out if you like, but Pajero in Spanish means wanker. <laughs> so it really work out particularly well for them. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's a niche market for people who just sort of... <laughs> for that kind of a car. Yeah, yeah. What are the typical problems you're called in to address, and are, are there particular services that you would focus on first? Yeah. So for a smaller company, the kind of thing that people will often say when you ask about the challenges is, "I don't know where to start. I kind of see an opportunity somewhere, but I just don't know where to start to to make this a reality." And so in that case, what we are doing is we are holding the company's hand and walking them through the process of creating an international strategy step by step. Now, people sometimes go, well, what is a strategy exactly? And uh, what I would say is it's everything from helping the company to establish a very clear vision about what they want to do and some goals that they're going to achieve by specific dates, right through to helping them decide which market they're going to choose uh, who their ideal client in the international market is, what the competition looks like, uh, whether there's product market fit, um, you know, um, some of the cultural challenges that they're going to deal with, some of the regulatory hurdles that they're going to have to jump, um, what kind of financing that they might need and what kind of team they're going to need to put together. So that that's kind of the most comprehensive set of issues that we might deal with and, and typically we'd, deal with those issues if somebody was going through the International Business Accelerator. And at the yeah. other end of the spectrum, we might just do one thing. So as I said, you know, a company might come to us. Companies do come to us and say, we've got some cross-cultural challenges. Can you come and work with our team um, for a number of days and just help us to sort through this narrow set of problems that that is to do with working cross-culturally. Yeah, I think that could be really powerful for any business. It's very HR-related anyway. I can actually recall running training programs in, in Europe and I was going around UK and Ireland running these sessions, leadership training, whatever it was. And then I went across, I got asked to run the same sessions over in Amsterdam and The Hague. So in the UK, I'd say, here's some information. What do you think about this? And everyone would go, oh, yeah, that's very good. I like that. And then I went across <laughs> to the to the Netherlands and, and ran the same session and here's some information what do you think about that and they went Ben I think you're full of crap yeah. <laughs> and would tell me why and you know I respected that even just in short distances there are great cultural differences let alone continents absolutely is part of that under the uh, international business accelerator is that right well, yeah we do a little bit of the cross-cultural piece in the international business accelerator but to be honest working cross-culturally is such a huge topic yeah. that we only get to cover a small piece of it. Yeah. You know, we cover it in quite a general way. And then if people say, oh, we need help with a specific market, we can always go back and create a specific workshop for that company yeah, and help them sort through whatever they need, help with or brief them on whatever their team needs uh, to learn about. 
Yeah. So what is the International Business Accelerator? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it, look, essentially, we call it a structured pathway into international markets. So it is a, a program that we run for companies looking to get into international markets, which we can either deliver as a whole, where they will come in as part of a cohort and go through uh, a program which helps them to create the strategy, or we can deliver the program for them in a shorter time frame, one-to-one, so we work only with their company. But what it really is, is a will-do-it-with-you solution for getting into global markets rather than a will-do-it-for-you solution, which is what we typically do for a larger company. I see. And is that just Australian-based or is it international? No, look, the, um, the International Business Accelerator runs virtually. So it runs on the Zoom platform. Yep. And as long as people can deal with the time difference and they're in a time zone that works, at the moment it's only available in English. So as long as they can work in English, they can join. So, you know, we work with companies from Australia, but we've also worked with companies from India, from Jordan uh, and from the United States. Okay, very good. Okay, so changing focus then, once an HR business has chosen a particular country as the base for an expansion into a new continent, such as Europe or Middle East, wherever, what actually happens next? Can you walk us through some of the steps? Yeah, well, look, I mean, a lot of it's going to depend on how they actually choose to set up. Possibly they're going to have um, just a rep office with some salesperson or some salespeople in the office. Yep. Uh, and in that case, you know, they would need to go through the process of working out what the setup formula was for that particular country, you know, what hoops they needed to jump through in terms of registration, um, whether they had to have an office, you know, what the other things, what the other kind of regulatory formalities they needed to do were. And then if most of the operation was running virtually, things might continue pretty much as normal. So that's where you've got uh, an operation that is mainly a virtually distributed team with, you know, just a sales force uh, in one place. But, you know, if you decide to essentially set up a local office in a new jurisdiction and it's not going to run out of your central office, it gets a little bit more complicated. So in that case, you've got to do your company setup, you've got to hire your office or, you know, work out where you're going to work from. And then you've got to go about doing things like hiring staff. And, you know, as you'll know, as an HR specialist, when you hire staff in a new, new jurisdiction, it tends to get a little bit more complicated because as a rule, the rules around hiring people and HR and compliance are always different to whatever you're going to find at home. Yeah. And so that immediately adds an extra layer of complexity. Yeah, sure. The marketing element that sometimes businesses might think, well, all right, we're just going to add a, a new location and we'll turn our website into that language as well. So we'll have for instance, offering French or some other language, but not considering that that's not just a website. There's any blog articles you've ever written, any uh, emails that are automatically sent if someone sends a query, all that kind of stuff. There's a huge body of work that you need to sort of plan out. Yes, I totally agree. Translating your website and localizing it is a really complex project and uh, yeah. it takes more than five minutes to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Any other advice that you might have for HR companies that want to expand internationally? Yeah, look, just when you do it, really think carefully about what's going to make you successful and how you're going to stand out because that HR space internationally is pretty competitive. There are quite a few HR companies that are operating out of one city but but have agents or branches around the world. So, you know, you need to give that business model thought before you get started and pay particular attention to 
how you're going to compete on price and how you're going to charge your clients because when they're looking for an HR solution, they obviously want something that's going to be effective, but they also want something that's going to be cost effective. So I think effectiveness and cost effectiveness are probably your top two considerations. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. We've covered a lot of ground. You've given us some excellent information, some uh, really nice insights there. If people want to learn more about you and your business, what should they do next? And also, if I could ask, could you mention your book? Because I noticed that you have an Amazon bestseller and you also have another book coming coming out soon. So you've been very busy. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, the first book is called Camels, Shakes and Billionaires. And that's the one that's the Amazon bestseller. And that is really about how to do business in the Middle East, you know, in case any of your listeners are thinking about taking their company to the Middle East. Yeah. At the moment, the best place to get that is on Amazon as a Kindle. Um, if you want a hard copy, our website ordering is currently not up and running. But if you get in touch with me on LinkedIn, um, my name is Cynthia Deeran. There's only one of me. Um, you can just send me a message on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to post you a copy. Great. The second book is supposed to be coming out later this year. Uh, it's been a little bit delayed because I have a nine-month-old baby and that has kind of ah. um, thrown my plans off <laughs> a tiny bit. It can happen, yep. <laughs> but um, the book is called, the second book is called Business Beyond Borders, Take Your Company Global. And it's a really a how-to book for smaller companies thinking about global markets and wondering if they can do it. And um it's a, it's a bit of a step-by-step guide to actually not stopping up your international expansion. So that one is not quite out yet, but I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll manage to get it published in the, the next um, few months. Now, if people want to get in touch with me, as I said, LinkedIn is a great place to start. Just send me a message. I'd love to connect with you. Yeah. Uh, or you could check out our website, uh, dirinassociates.com, uh, and you can all, always send a message through there and it will... It will reach me and uh, one of my team can set up a time for us to talk if you've got questions. All right, very good. I'm really looking forward to that book when it comes out. Yeah, I know. If you'd like, Ben, I'll send you a copy of the one that already exists. Oh, no, I'll go, I'll go to the Kindle and get that one. That's no problem. <laughs> Fantastic. I do actually love your website, by the way. If you're um, listening, I'll put Cynthia's LinkedIn and the website into the show notes, but do go and check out the website. I just love zooming across this. What is that, New York, the skyline? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, very <laughs> cool. Very cool. Excellent. All right. Well, Cynthia, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed our chat today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. All the best then. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.